Stand by for a start. Racing at $210,000 at Isella Dunn Pulldown. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by our fantastic sponsors, IRT and Stable Financial. In the 13 episodes we've had to date, we've spoken to, I reckon, Australia's sharpest bloodstock minds, but one topic we probably haven't covered, so far anyway, is what it takes to actually become a bloodstock agent or to become involved in the bloodstock industry. So joining me today to educate and to inspire as well, I hope, are Grant Burns from Premier Bloodstock Services and Suman Hedge, of course, from the world famous Suman Hedge Bloodstock. Grant, Suman, thanks for joining me. Uh, morning, Mick. Suman. Hey, Grant. It's a bit of a, I guess you'd say if there's an off season in the industry, this is kind of it. But there's still enough happening in the racing and, and breeding world to, to keep us interested and to keep us busy. Um, Grant, over in WA, what's keeping you busy at this time of year? What have you been up to of late? Oh, look, it, you're right. It is a bit of a lull, I guess, before the, the foals start dropping. But there's, um, there's always a few clients. I've, I've got a business that's quite sort of um, – uh, there's a lot of aspects to it. So I've got some mares – our clients with mares in the east, so we're obviously busy booking those, but there's not a huge number. The lucky thing in the west, we're, we're not sort of under too much pressure with stallions filling up as they are in the east coast, so we're able to sort of leave our bookings a lot later here. So I have got a bit of a lull. Um, I've just had a week up in Broome, would you believe, watching the races up there on the dirt. So around Australia, horses race and all sorts of services, so it's nice to see some um, horses racing up there. But um, look, at this time of year, it's mostly centred around around that, stallion bookings, um, trying to acquire the odd stallion for the West. You know, we're always looking. Um, and obviously broodmares, trading mares, getting young fillies off the track ready to go to start and the like. So there's plenty, there's always plenty on. But um, for me, this time of year, it is a little bit of a quieter time. I've never been to Broome, but it's somewhere I've always wanted to go. A, a good mate of mine who's known to you both and plenty of people in the industry. Toby Liston has done a few trips up there and raves about the racing. What was that experience like at, at Broome Races? Well, it just shows you how vast our racing is here in Australia. And it, it's amazing that we, we do need to supply a lot of product to race on a lot of different tracks. So they race on the dirt up there. And it, look, there's no better, um, no better landscape. And you're standing up in the, uh, in the grandstand there. You look one way, there's the ocean one way. And the ocean, the beautiful cable beach behind you, it's... Uh, Look, it's hard to knock and, um, yeah, a bit of horse racing thrown in for good measure. It's, uh, look, it's not Royal Ascot, but I tell you what, it's, um, it's got a lot of appeal as well. And it um, just shows you that those little country towns, and well, Broome's probably a little bit different, but a lot of country towns through Western Australia and throughout Australia, in fact, have those race meetings annually or, you know, every few months, whatever. Um, and it's, they're an important part of our racing landscape. Well, some have their eyes on Broome, others have their eyes on places more far flung. And Suman, you were focused well and truly on Germany for the German Derby. That's it's the second time you've had a runner in that race recently? Yeah, it is, Shark. Um, that's been something um, that we've introduced into the business over the last couple of years. We um, A few years ago, we, we, we had a horse called Django Freeman that we purchased, we bought into, and uh, he ran very well and, and, and was runner-up. And... Um, more recently, I've been involved in a syndicate 
in Germany called Liberty Racing, which um, Lars Baumgarten, who we uh, raced Django Freeman with, he set this up and it's, uh, it's, it's a fairly new enterprise and a new idea for Germany. And um, we just wanted to see if we could buy horses earlier uh, as yearlings and um, hopefully pick out a few um, and, and they would perform well and, and have equity in them before they become really expensive because ultimately if they perform well, they, they become very hard to buy. And, um, yeah, in, out of the first four purchases, uh, a horse called Assistant, um, son of See the Moon, uh, he's been showing a lot of talent and, you know, he won his, his, his maid and then he, then he won a, a stakes race and he ran really well. He, he ended up coming fourth to uh, Samarco. He, uh, uh, he wasn't beaten very far. Um, and interestingly, Samarco was uh, a horse that we'd shortlisted as well for purchase. Um, he made a little bit too much for the syndicate. So um, they definitely had their eyes in when they were um, doing their uh, yearling selections. And um, we're hopeful that we can bring assistant out to Australia and race him, if not this spring, uh, certainly um, next year. But we're just going through the process now of um, trying to acquire the horse. I look forward to meeting Lars Baumgarten if he ever comes <laughs> to Australia. He sounds like a Bond villain to me. This is somebody who should be wearing a hat and lurking around. <laughs> doing mysterious He's... things. But syndication, is that something that's, you know, we're all very familiar with it in Australia, but, and it's, it's starting to gather a bit of momentum, you know, through the racing club model in the UK. But, but what about Germany and places like France? Is syndication sort of still in its infancy there? Yeah, it is. It's, it's very new. In Europe, yeah, typically horses are owned by a dominant person. Um, there's, some extraordinarily wealthy people there and they find it quite novel that we race in these partnerships and um, often when we're trying to do transactions and we're trying to purchase horses and we're trying to raise the capital and, and get different people involved, they find that quite strange. Like they just think, well, if that's the money, have the money in the bank the next day. And um, as, as you know, um, it's not quite like that in Australia. You've often got 15, 20, 30 people that are taking shares. So it takes a bit of time. But the syndication model, um, it they are trying to get some traction there just to try to get new people involved so that they can um, revitalise um, racing a little bit um, in some of these places. And racing struggling in Germany. A lot of the, the, the tracks are closing down and they don't have a lot of support from the government like we do here in Australia. So they're just trying anything they can to um, to get it going and get a little bit of energy there. And this has been good because it's the first syndication model and they've had a, a really nice horse come out of it. So hopefully they'll inspire a little bit more there in the future. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's really good news. And in other words, I guess it's a taking that, that worldview and hearing about some issues that, that other jurisdictions around the world are, are facing, we sometimes forget how good we've got it here in Australia. And although we're not without our own issues, uh, others are sort of still grappling with that first point of engagement. And, and in Australia, we've, we've managed to find that with syndication, which has you know, been a remarkable boon for the industry probably in the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would use the same analogy of, of Australia as a country. Um, you don't realise how good Australia is until you travel to other countries and you, you're, you're faced with all sorts of different things. And we, we realise how lucky and how, you know, this really is the best country. And I feel the same way about our racing. Um, you know, there's 
wonderful racing all around the world and we enjoy it. We like seeing Royal Ascot and we'll enjoy seeing the international stage. But the way that our racing is managed and um, the opportunities that are there for all of us, it's, um, it's second to none. Speaking of opportunities, there's probably a lot of young people that have tuned into this podcast over you know, the last 13 episodes that are passionate about the industry and maybe don't know where to start and you know, want to filter out those little nuggets of gold from established agents. But as I said in the intro, something we probably haven't talked much about is how people can get involved in the bloodstock side of the industry. And I wanted to, I guess, use both of you as an example and hear your story to a degree and, and peel out how things have changed since the days when you first got involved to, to what the industry is like now and what it's like to be a modern agent. So, Grant, I'll ask you first, but how, what inspired you to get involved in racing and, and what were your first steps in the industry? Well, it's funny. I, I grew up in a little town and called Wingatui, just out of Dunedin in the South Island of New Zealand, and, and I'd always had a close affinity with racing through my, um, through my father, who was a, a saddler. Uh, he had a saddlery business, but it had always... Um, had horses. His father was a horse trainer and trained jumpers mostly down that part of the world. So I had an affinity and um, done a bit of work around the racetrack and had a motorbike that I used to ride and I to, had to get petrol for the motorbike. So I'd work in the stables down the road, picking up, picking up horse shit, basically, <laughs> to put it bluntly. And um, so and then obviously, you know, there wasn't a great industry down there for me. So I um, went off and did some other things and was lucky enough to travel um around the world a bit. And then when I come back to Australia, I was like, you know, I've got to get back involved in horses. This is what I really love. And um, it's, it's a passion I had. And I basically went door knocking. I come to Australia and went door knocking, knocked on 101 doors from the from the, the sales companies to the stud book to Racing New South Wales to everywhere in between to get a start. And then I was just doing odd jobs. And it was Don Hancock from who was running Magic Millions at the time that rang me and asked me where I'd got to and whatever I got up to. And he said, you know what, I might find you a job. And, you know, I was still very passionate about it. And that's one thing I think he'd picked up on from me. Um, you know, I'd had a lot of different horse experience from, you know, riding when I was younger to working on the starting gates to all sorts of various things. Um, but I think I just went and knocked on doors and tried and got myself a start. And I think that's a big thing for people. There's a lot of pathways in there, great pathways into the industry. But I think if you've got a... Um, a bit of a work ethic and you've got great enthusiasm and are prepared to do anything and go anywhere, which I was, um, you know, it's amazing where you can end up. And, you know, now I'm living in the West. I've got my own business. So I'm, I'm lucky enough to still do a lot of auctioneering for Magic Millions as a contractor for them. And, um, yeah, it's a good life. I think you hit on a really important point. There's particularly when you're a late teenager and you're in your early 20s, like you want something or you really, really want something. And in the racing industry, people that have been around for a while and have done the hard yards and they understand what makes the industry tick, I think they can filter out those people that are genuinely passionate and genuinely want to be involved. And knocking on doors, getting in front of people, selling yourself and showing people how keen you are, that's often worth so much more than just sitting at home and applying for random jobs that come up on online isn't it well it is and i think that's something that comes up rubs off when you go and meet people and you take you know i took i took notes from people you know when i thought don hancock was one of the first person that i'd met because i happened to be in queensland at the time so i went and knocked on their door at magic millions and had a chance meeting with him and he told me to do try this try that try all sorts of things i went and tried all those 
I listened to them and I did it. And I went and the next person I spoke to, I tried that, tried the, you know, and, and it was one of those things where um, I guess ultimately he sat back and looked and thought, well, this guy's having a crack. He's listening and he's trying. I'm going to give him a chance and away we go from there. And look, we often see it now. You wander around a sale yard and there's a lot of people on a sale ground when you're at an auction. And the kids or the younger people, male or female, or people that have got a bit of get up and go about them, they stand out. They really do. And you can pick them. And we talk about them. You know, we often chat about them amongst our, our own federation guys. I know with the Magic Millions crew that, that, you know, when I'm auctioneering with them, we often say, oh, gee, have you seen the young bloke working down there or the young lass that's working here? You know, like, gee, they've got a, you know, they've got a bit going for them. You know, there'd be someone worth, you know, chasing and seeing whether they want to be involved a bit more and, in other parts of the industry. So, um, you know, look, that's all I can say to people. Never, never say never. I'm probably a perfect example of someone that's come from pretty, I guess, I shouldn't say humble beginnings, but like um, started off with um, limited opportunity, I guess. And then, um, but with a bit of hard work and a, and a bit of good luck, it's amazing where you can end up. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Suman, you had a bit of good luck early in your career. And, and look, you're famously sort of linked to horses like Triple Honor and Written Tycoon and Zoostar and these sort of things through what your own adventures, but also through a Scander racing. Tell us what got you involved in racing. What was the, what was the spark that lit the fire in you? Oh, Shark, for me, racing was more or less like a hobby uh, for many years. I, it was just something that I, I loved sport and um, loved racing and followed it intently. And, um, you know, I, I um, through my own endeavours, started going to sales and um, getting catalogues and reading them and, and memorising them and things like that. But, you know, I had an extremely superficial knowledge uh, of the industry. I, I thought that my knowledge was better than what it was, um, but I was just very lucky to meet uh, Sharif Iskander through my brother and, and, and through that connection meet guys like John O'Shea when he was starting out his career. That was the lucky part for me because it, it, I was able to meet someone who was extremely knowledgeable and, and had very good processes, was extremely professional, and that expedited my knowledge and, and my ability to learn. If I'd gone to the wrong people or, or just been unlucky enough not to have that, I think I could have had a very different, um, you know, uh, result and I may not have been in the industry. So that was the lucky part. And then I think when you're given those little bits of luck, then you've got to make the most of it. Um, so once I could see that potentially there was a future, 
then I started to um, try to learn as much as I could and, and really get mentorship. The best advice I could give to younger people that are in the industry and have ambitions to have a career in, in racing is to try to identify who are the most knowledgeable people, the most respected people. To do that, you've got to ask a lot of questions. You've got to um, meet a lot of people, put yourself out there, have the confidence to do that. A lot of people in our industry are wonderful. They, they only want to help you um, and they want to see the young people coming through and um, they, they get a kick out of it. You know, they, they, it's something that they enjoy. So when you're starting, there's always that fear and there's always that bit of trepidation and you feel a bit intimidated to, to email someone or to set up a meeting or ask if, for their time. But it's really the best thing that you can do. Um, I've been in the industry for 20 years and I still learn something nearly every day. Um, you know, I, I work closely with guys like Scott Holcomb, Rob Pettith now, and they teach me stuff every day, you know, and I never let my own ego get in front of me. You always got to remain humble regardless of what you're doing and understand that there's people that know more than you and have done more. Um, and that's the other part to it. No matter how far you feel, how advanced you feel, I look back on what I was doing 10 years ago and 15 and 20 years ago, and it's, I, I think, oh, my God, like the decisions I was making were ridiculous, you know, like I was – I. I thought at the time they were the right things, but now that I guess I've been around the block, I could see how naive I was. And um, don't be in a rush. I think um, understand that these things take time, but it's mainly perseverance and and never be afraid to ask questions or seek um, knowledge from people that you respect. So gathering that knowledge and making those connections is, is critical, obviously, but... What do you need, like for, from a bloodstock agent point of view, what are the tools that you need to be a good agent or to be a successful agent? Is there anything that sort of stands out in your mind, Grant? Oh, look, I think now the, the agents, it's evolved the business, obviously. And, and I think depending on experience, a lot of the agents sort of maybe specialise in certain areas. Um, myself living in the West where there's basically only a couple of agents, I probably tend to do a lot of things um, from my auctioneering with Magic Millions um, through to, you know, valuations. Um, they're, they're quite a big part of my business. Um, doing matings, selling breeding stock, selling horses into Asia, you know, more so um, previously out of Western Australia, a lot of horses went into Singapore. So there was always that tried horse market there. there was, there's race fillies off the track. We've got quite a small community here, so I spend a fair bit of time at the races and a lot of the guys will come up to you, oh, Grant, can I sell this? What should I do here and there? So my business is quite sort of diverse. Um, that said, I probably don't I don't go to the auctions and and do a lot of yearling buying, for instance, because I'm I'm probably on the other side of the rostrum where I'm where I'm auctioneering from it with a magic millions hat on. Um, so the, you know, the first six months of my year is is taken up doing that, and then the latter part of it there's always there's tried horses to sell, there's breeding stock. So. Um, you know, I've got quite a diverse um, business, but yet a lot of other guys might have concentrated on solely doing breeding stock, um, solely doing tried horses into into that market, into Asia, for instance. Um, so I guess we're all very different, and that's a big um, part of the federation. We've got members there that, you know, I don't know a lot about their business. I know the guys, but they, they've got quite diverse businesses, which is really, really interesting. Um, 
I just, I'll just touch on what Suman said a moment ago. It's like one thing people are so happy to do is give their time. Um, just, I'll just touch on that because it's really important. Like we all really get a kick out of seeing young people coming through. And I was very lucky to spend a lot of time with a, a gentleman by the name of George Smith, who was a, was a bit of an industry icon. And, you know, you'd go around paddocks with George for a good number of years and, and, he he would he would say himself, oh, you learn something new every day. And here's a guy who was, you know, he's well into his eighties now, George. Like he's, um, you know, when people like that that you believe are like the icons of the game when it comes to looking at horses, they're telling you they're learning every day. Well, um, we certainly are as well. So, um, but I, I think that's the the key thing for for people looking to be involved. There's no, there's, you don't have to be a jack of all trades. There's, there's certain areas you can concentrate on that you might find more interesting than others, and and find your little niche. You know, I'm Suman's obviously extremely experienced in that in that buying those horses from overseas and the likes, which we was talking about before the journey. That's something I've never um, tapped into, but it's great that we've got a um, a wide variety of um, skill sets within our federation. When you find that area that you really like. How do you develop those skills? Is it just a matter of, of practice? Like we often see, and anyone who's been to a yearling sale or, or an auction and gone around when there's inspections happening, you'll see people going around with a trainer or going around with a bloodstock agent. What are those conversations like? You know, when you've got someone there as a, I guess, as a student, somebody who's learning, what sort of conversations are you having with them? What are you trying to show them or what knowledge are you trying to impart? So, so if I might touch on that, was from an, it's really interesting. From an auctioneering point of view, if I'm walking around the sales and I go around and look at every horse that I'm selling before I, before the sale, I'm, I'm there working for the vendor. So I'm on that side of the fence. My job is to promote that horse the best I can. And, and it might be, so when I, if I've got a, and often we have you know, young people that have come through Marcus Oldham or through you know, thoroughbred industry careers and those those wonderful schemes that they've got now to get people involved into the game, we often have them at the sales with us. Um, so I'm talking to them about, I've got to find the positives. That horse is going to walk into the sale ring for two minutes and I've got to try and hit the points that are going to help sell that horse. So it might be, look at the strength of the quarters on it, look at this, look at that. Oh, gee, he looks like his brother, he's this. So my... My role is to to promote that horse the best it can. And, you know, when we go through a magic million sale, we're hopefully selling, we'd like to sell 100%, but we're selling nine out of 10 at least, you know, up there in January. And um, so I've got to find the positive points of every horse to try and help sell that for the vendor. And it's a, and that's what I'm doing when I'm looking. Um, and look, I put a little score on each horse. So if someone comes along and asks me, oh, Grant, you know, can you tell me what you like? I'm looking for this, that, and the next thing. I can give them a bit of a guide, but, I'm probably on the opposite side of the fence and say Suman, for instance, who's who's going to critique them a lot harder than I am. I'm going to be very, very, very positive. He might be trying to find the negatives and I don't see any negatives in a horse because you go to the races on a sad day. And that's one thing I tell young people. This what I call observational learning is you go to the races and watch horses walk back into the you know, winners, second, third, the top three place getters of every race. Watch them walk back in and you'll learn a lot because tell you what, we can walk around sale yards until we're blue in the face and critique them very heavily. But you watch winners come back in and they do come back in all shapes and sizes. But um, yeah, there's a, a nice horse has got something about it, whether it's big, small, you know, confirmationally not perfect as we might call it. But um, that's a great place to learn watching horses that are mounting out at a racetrack. And it costs you nothing to do that. 
I guess that's that's the secret sauce, isn't it? You know, finding the agents that have success, they find the horses that have that something about them, but they're the ones that are able to see it. And so I mean, that's that's kind of like the what I'm trying to get at here. If 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 I have a, a mate who wants to be a bloodstock agent, so I go around with Suman Hedge, have a look at some horses with him. How do you explain to them what that little X factor is? Or is it, you know, these are the faults. These I can point out faults. Everyone can learn that. But th- there's that beauty in the eye of the beholder element that, that you can't really quantify. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt that some of the things are a little bit intangible. But um, in, in terms of the way that I go about it, and I've had a couple of juniors um, reach out and ask if they could attend sales, and I've loved taking them around. And um, it actually feels... Um, really nice to be able to do something like that and that people would, would want to, um, you know, have your opinion on, on these things. But I, I'm actually uh, probably more of a positive person when I'm looking at horses. So I think everyone's different. Um, some people like to see a horse in front of them and, and pick that horse apart and look at every positives, negatives and all this sort of stuff. But for me personally, I don't have that much energy. Like I've got so much energy at a sale and I've got so many hours to get through the horses. So I'm not looking for reasons not to buy a horse. I'm looking for reasons to buy a horse. And for that, I need to see positive attributes that are appealing to me that have worked uh, previously in horses that we've bought. Um, so when I see a horse that I don't like, um, I don't waste a whole lot of time with it. I'll do the courtesy um, of seeing the horse walk for the handler and the preparer because they put work into it. You know, it seems very rude to just um, not spend any time on the horse. Uh, They've obviously brushed it and got it ready. And, you know, there's a lot of effort behind that. And I think you need to show the courtesy to people in that regard. But at the same time, I've got a job to do and I've, um, I've got limited time. So I try to use the time as effective as I can and um, we'll look at it once and then say, thanks. And then the horses we like, we'll, we'll be very studious with and we'll spend a bit more time and we'll then look at those horses several times to identify what their temperaments might be like and, and their toughness and how they're handling the wholesale thing. And that's what I'm trying to pass on to the people that are with me. So if there's a student there and taking them along, we're saying, look, these are the attributes that we look for in terms of movement, physical attributes, balance, um, temperament. And the ones I've found so far, um, you know, I, I went around with uh, Jock Ferguson and he, he doesn't need to learn from me. I mean, he's a gun, um, but he was just a pleasure to go around with because you could see that he was taking everything in. Um, he had his own opinions, but he was, he was willing to ask questions and the right questions and, and, and was concentrated and, you, it's a lot more fulfilling when you've got someone like that. Um, and then I was actually asking him like questions and learning from him as well. So um, that's pretty much how I like to do it. There's uh, the nuts and bolts of looking at horses and, and making those decisions <clears throat> probably hasn't evolved a hell of a lot, but the tools that help you make those decisions haven't. And the way, you know, the bloodstock industry has evolved itself in the last 10 or 20 years has also changed. Only in the last 48 hours, a, a Group 1 winning mare, Sierra Sue, gets sold via a standalone digital auction for $1.55 million. Like, w- you couldn't conceive of that 10 years ago. I wanted to ask both of you, what's the biggest change or the, I guess, the, the biggest innovation 
from your role as a private agent in that last 10 or 20 years? Suman, what, what springs to mind for you? Uh, clearly online's been a seismic change for all of us. Um, I'm sure for Grant as an, as an auctioneer, um, it's, it's, it, this is all new and we're still learning um, about it and, and the impacts on the industry, the impacts on agents, on sales companies. And there's definitely going to be some changes. I think you, we're going to find now because of COVID that's expedited this whole thing. And uh, there's, there's clearly going to be a lot more horses sold through that avenue because of the simplicity of it. And that, that there's positives and negatives that, that come with that. Uh, I, I would say that that's been um, one of the bigger things, but, here in Australia, I think the other big impact's been the international impact on our market. We had a, you know, very much a domesticated market for many years, and you had players there that um, were wealthy and, and had high volume, and, and they were difficult to contend with to try to, to beat when you liked a horse. Now you've really got the international money, and that's just a different level. Um, and, and with that, it's caused, um, there's cause and effect. So when that money comes in, then the domestic people say, okay, well, we can't combat that on our own, so let's put groups together. So now you're getting these stallion syndicates coming together trying to buy colts, and that's um, obviously um, having an impact on the market. It's making colts more expensive. And the next is going to be fillies now because once that happens and people who can't buy colts, they move to fillies. So now there'll be Philly syndicates and, and they are starting already. And you'll find because it's been so lucrative to sell, to on-sell these Phillies when they've performed, people can see an opportunity there. And that's how it works. So I was involved with pin hooking. I still am. And it, we've had some very good years doing that and then some average years doing that. And now that market is in saturation, you know, so it's become a lot more difficult. And because the other yielding market's so strong, uh, the weanlings have been harder to get. Not as many of them have been available and you've got more people looking for them. So there's always these changes that are that are occurring. But for me, it would mainly be the international um, involvement in Australia and now the online presence. Yeah, I think, I, th I think Suman's hitting the nail on the head there. And I think we are, Australia is the envy of the world. Like our stallion market is incredible. You know, compared to other parts of the world, the the investment. I think for a long time we we're probably seen as the, you know, that's where all the convicts are down in Australia. But now they're they're actually going. No, we want to get down there and get involved because there is, it's just such a lucrative business. And I I think like our racing, we're probably a bit more rapid fire. I guess you'd call it. Um, up in Europe, you've got the the old money and and that they buy the yearling and they put it in the paddock and they break it. And it's all about winning the classics. Whereas we're down here, we're like. Right, when, when, we're probably sitting here now going, when's the first two-year-old trials? Like we're actually <laughs> eagerly awaiting that. We're all about speed, speed, speed. And and with that, the advent of, of the, the online business has allowed allowed pen blokes sitting at a pub to go, let's buy a share in a horse in an online auction today, we'll give it a couple of runs. If it's no good, we put it online again and we buy another one. And we, we you know, when I say rapid fire, it's that turning over, that trading that we are um, – you know, as, as Suman touched on a moment ago, weanlings and trading, all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of trade and race fillies and to broodmares and the likes. But I think that online market, as much as it pains me, and I you know, wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat as an auctioneer thinking, oh, my God, these online auctions are, you know, the death of the auctioneer. You know, those egomaniacs that stand up there with their gavel and, you know, love hearing the sound of their own voice. Um, it's um, the online business has come so far so quickly. And, again, you know, 
due probably to COVID in a lot of ways. But I think it's a it's it's a great avenue, and like especially for us in the West, like we only have one or two little mixed sales a year, live auctions. So if someone's got a racehorse they don't want anymore, it's not quite up to metro grade. Bang, you whack them online, they get sold, and they might be racing in Kalgoorlie, Esperance, up in Broome, as I or even they might hit they might hit east, you know. So there's a it's a great way for those the the mum and dad investor, all the investors for that matter, to buy in, but they know if they think, look, I want to get out, it's an easy way of getting out. They can put it online and then they can go again. And I think we're getting that continuous invest selling, trading, reinvestment, which is really, really it's very, very good for the industry. It really is. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. It's almost filled that void that, you know, claiming races in other jurisdictions around the world has provided. You know, you can take a horse to the races with a view to selling it after the race in a live auction. It's just digitised that. It's the Australian, I guess, COVID digital version of those sort of claiming sales. But we, we needed one here, I think. And I often think about when I lived in the UK, there was a horse called Kingsgate Native who was a great two-year-old. I think he was group one place against older horses as a, as a sprinter, as a two-year-old. But he raced till he was about nine. And he went through about four or five stables and often younger trainers. And he would go and do a job and win a stakes race, most preparations, although sometimes obscure ones. But there was an example of a horse who was right up at, at the elite level as a younger horse came down the rungs later on, but gave a whole group of other people and trainers and connections joy along that journey. And, and that's, that's something we can, we can tap into and access via these digital sales. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, you've always got to try to look at um, the positives when an environment's changing. And as an agent, it's a bit confronting with uh, online because it almost feels as if it makes you somewhat redundant um, in, in, in a way. But um, I think with certain things like weanlings, for example, um, you really have to see the horses and it's just not practical to be able to see the volume for it to be completely online. I think that those those sales will have to continue to be live. And still the, the premium bloodstock that we've got, um, I still feel the best place to sell them is at a live auction because... With mares, you know, seeing the mares, getting a feeling for it, and also invoking some emotions in your clients, with your clients to to come and see that we always try to encourage our clients to be at the sales, to to feel a part of the process. Um, there's nothing like it, you know, and and we've got wonderful auctioneers like Grant's, one of them, that um, have the ability to um, 
you know, just create this 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 sense of excitement and energy at a sale, and and it definitely affects you. You know, when you're when you're buying, you you, you really want to be involved in that. So, um, I look at it probably more like you that Australians typically, and even I guess to a lesser extent, New Zealanders. I think New Zealanders in more recent years have been traders because they've had to be, but I think Australians have been very possessive about their horses and very reluctant to trade, and it's certainly changed the mentality of people now because. In the past, you bought a horse and then if it wasn't working out, you had to wait till the next year to probably buy again, whereas now you know that even if you sell your share, there's probably something else you can get involved with quickly. And I think that's the, the main positive out of all of this. Now, gentlemen, yeah. before I let you go, it, if, bring it back to a timely sort of point. By the time this goes to air and we, we record the next episode, we're going to have little foals on the ground around Australia. I wanted to ask both of you, is there a stallion whose first progeny we're expecting this season that, that you're really excited to see? You know, a horse that you think, gee, I loved him as a racehorse. We sent clients' mares there or sent my own mares there. I, I, I can't wait to see the progeny of this stallion. What what pops to mind for either of you? Um, well, for me, uh, it would be Farnan. Um, I think that uh, he was just a horse for me that he was so tough. I don't think people really appreciate how tough that horse was because to do what he did as a two-year-old, the, the races that he won was an achievement in itself. But he was a horse that had, um, you know, re- ongoing foot management of his of his feet, and um, and he had to show a lot of courage uh, just to present himself at the races. And I think we know with with, with the Waterhouse Stable, you know, that they've got to be resilient, tough horses to come through there. And if they do, um, you know, horses like Sebring and Northern Meteor and Piero, you know, some of her better colts. Um, and now it's with Adrian as well, uh, they've, they've, they've proven to be good stallions. So um, physically he's a lovely horse as well. Um, we've got clients, a client with significant equity in the, in, in the stallion. And uh, look, for me, he's a, he's a horse that I'm very much looking forward to. I think we're really starting to appreciate now the influence of not a single doubt in Australia and, and how significant that was. And very much like Written Tycoon and I'm Invincible. He came from really humble beginnings um, from a low service fee. So, um, and now we're seeing sort of, you know, that generation of extreme choice and that coming through. So I, I, um, I have a lot of time for fun and he's at a gorgeous farm. I went and visited uh, Kiora recently and it's an absolute showpiece what they're doing over there. Like when people do the stallion parades, they'll be blown away. Um, and it's all part of this new investment that we're having here in Australia. So, um, yeah, that's the horse that I'm probably looking forward to. Yeah, look, I, I probably can't um, disagree with this. I mean, look, over in the Wild West, we probably don't, uh, we're not afforded to all those beautiful uh, first season horses as such that they do get up in the Hunter in Victoria. But look, any Golden Slipper winner is um, pretty exciting. And, and I guess you know, horses like him, Bivouac's a pretty exciting horse of, um, of Godolphins or Darlies, of course, as well. It's funny, like as an auctioneer, you when you, when you go to the weanling sales, I guess each year to, to auction, you just—it's like Christmas in the middle of the year for us. Look, looking at all the foals, because obviously I'm not up on the hunter getting to drive around the farms as much. So you get to the weanling sales, and it's like it's like a 
box of chocolates on, you know, every time they come out, seeing what they, these new horses are throwing up. Um, so that's exciting. And then obviously you get to January at the Gold Coast where you see everything and the, the best of them. You know, Wheeling Sales, you get a splattering of these new sizes as such. So, um, look, we're blessed with all these young horses that go to stud, aren't we? You know, we've got some incredible stallion farms up in the Hunter that are really aggressive, you know, taking horses internationally. Um you know, we're seeing it. You know, we're seeing it time and time again. It, it's it's great. You know, we um, it, it just keeps continue to grow our international, um, I guess, appeal to our market. You know, and obviously Newgate um, heavily involved in the Royal Ascot meeting, which is which is terrific. And yeah, you know, they're so aggressive down here with what they're doing, which is which is terrific. You know, they've come off they've come off sort of small beginnings to get to where they are now with a with a lot of exciting young stallions coming through the ranks. So um, now look. Touching the same as probably soon any Golden Slipper winner, and he, you know he, he makes a very valid point. Humble beginnings, um, not a single doubt. But like Suman and I, you know, to, um, I'm not sure we've, we've we've got to the uh, we've we've reached the, the deeds of not a single doubt yet. But we'll keep chipping away trying to get the odd one out there. Yeah, That's and, and Shark, we're um we we're also very excited about Fierce Impact as well. So, uh, oh. As am I, Seaman. I'm, I'm losing all my hair and going grey uh, as the due dates arrive. Don't worry about that. Well, he, I had um, I had some clients that that part owned him, so I've always followed his career, and uh, he's a he's a beautiful beautiful type. And I I was just looking at his numbers uh, last year, and they're very encouraging. So, fingers crossed for you on that one. No, it's very kind of you to uh, to wish us well. Yeah, fingers are definitely and toes and every limb possible are definitely crossed at Maniva Park while we wait for him. Uh, it's amazing yeah. where they give it an opportunity. They give a stallion an opportunity. It's amazing what they can do. You know, we've we've got a horse in the West here called Playing God who's doing an amazing yeah. job and started with really humble beginnings. He's done a you know he, he measures up with with many stallions and you know there's a couple of others here doing doing a really good job too. So it's amazing you can afford a horse an opportunity. Um, this is the place to do it because, you know, we'll never say never here. That's the one thing, you know, the glass is always half full, not half empty. So, um, which is, we love about the industry, of course. Well, you give a horse an opportunity, you give a young person an opportunity, you never know. Somebody might be listening that might be the next uh, superstar bloodstock agent and Grant and Sermon. Thank you for joining me and thanks for sharing some, some advice and pearls of wisdom. And I hope people listening to this episode have, have been inspired by your journeys and, and your knowledge. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Shark. And all I can say to, to young people, don't be frightened to come up and introduce yourself and say hello. You know, um, we're only, you know, I'm certainly only too willing to help. And I assume it isn't. And most of the other members of the of our association are. We're, um, yeah, we want to impart knowledge where we can. And um, please do come and ask. Thanks to Grant. Thanks to Suman. And thanks to everybody listening out there to the shortlist episode number 14. And remember, if you've ever dreamt of being involved, in the bloodstock industry, not only about buying horses, but maybe working in the industry yourself. The place to start and the people to contact are members of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents. And to get in contact with them, go to bloodstockagents.com.au.